I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. Welcome to another Prehistory Guys interview, bringing you different perspectives on the distant past. Yes, and we're breaking the mould a bit today because, brace yourselves, our guests today are experts in all manner of daily life from the Iron Age onwards. <laughs> Shocker, isn't it? <laughs> Michael and I came round to thinking that there is so much knowledge to be gleaned from the Iron Age that can shed light onto aspects of the Bronze Age and the Neolithic. So what better than to talk to people who spend their lives educating people about our Iron Age ancestors' daily existence? We should say that Caroline Nicolai and Tom Timbrell do work on all ages of history, but the Iron Age is their particular area of expertise. They work together as a team, recreating all the aspects of daily life in the distant past, putting on demonstrations of authentic catering, crafts, like creating paints and pigments, blacksmithing and metalworking. It's fantastic that the raw materials they work with for paints and pigments go all the way from prehistoric cave paintings to Roman frescoes. And apart from the public demonstrations, Tom also reproduces historical metalwork like knives and swords using the exact techniques available at the time. There's so much to talk about. Shall we get them in then? I think we better had. Welcome, Caroline. Welcome, Tom. Welcome to the Prehistory it's Guys uh, very podcast. Very good to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. How are you down in Dorset as you are? <laughs> Tom, after you. Hi, we're doing lovely, we are. It's all fun in this isolation, yeah. I've got to say. Um, but of course, you know, hey, that's how it is. But other than that, yeah, it's lovely. We're having a hearty mix of rain and sunshine down here, so it's good. Yeah, Are you actually preparing for any great things when lockdown is lifted? Hopefully Christmas markets. Um. Yeah, OK. <laughs> OK. Well, well, do you know what? Let, let, let's, uh, let's just uh, dig in, because the, the one thing that we always ask, first question up that we ask everybody is, what got you into what you do? You know, uh, so whether it's your individual yeah. disciplines or the fact that you focus, you know, your your real preference is is Iron Age related uh, stuff, even though you do a, mm. a, a lot on either side. But yeah, tell us about that. What you know, how how did you come to be where you are? Well, for myself, I um, was uh, studying his- studying history at the University of Leicester, um, and all the while doing that, I was actually quite desperate to study earlier periods, but the furthest back we went was about 7th century Anglo-Saxon England. Right. I really wanted to go further back than that. Um, so uh, fortunately, uh, when I uh, left university, I met a reenactment group who did the uh, Iron Age and Roman Britain. Um, it was also at the time that I was studying uh, training to be a blacksmith. So uh, fortunately, those two kind of went together, the Iron Age and blacksmithing. Um, yeah. And that that like of history for me, um, along with the practical crafts, uh, slowly uh, bloomed into something more. Um, I started doing historic demonstrations at a uh, a uh, Tudor living history site. Um, well, not far from yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, just in Stratford upon Avon. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, getting yeah. to do that um, while I was still learning blacksmithing, learning additional history around it, the role of the blacksmith in communities. And, and frankly, it just all goes together really well. Um, yeah. And you, 
I can get a bit obsessive when I'm researching something. So it just spirals and spirals and spirals into more and more, which is quite fun. Excellent. How about you, Caroline? A little bit differently, I have to say, because I didn't really, very strangely, from France, uh, I didn't really study or hear about the Iron Age before university. <laughs> so I studied biology yeah. uh, and then switched okay. over completely to um, ancient history, archaeology and art history. Okay, that's quite um, a leap. <laughs> it, was, it was a terrible year in biology. <laughs> so we changed. <laughs> so it was definitely uh, archaeology and antiquity, prehistory, ancient worlds, uh, as they call them. Um, and suddenly we had a... Um, a professor teaching us about the local Iron Age uh, out of the blue, and that was an incredible revelation for me. It was everything I've always been looking for, if you like. Uh, so the art was sort of Vikingy, Saxony, this type of northwestern yeah. Europe and Scandinavian. Um, but the even the early Hallstatt and the Latine art was really exactly what I was interested in. Um, then following a little bit on that, I uh, read a few books, fortunately, <laughs> and kept being told and remembering my very early teachers telling us that during prehistory, everybody was eating porridge and bland <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> uh -huh. So putting these two courses uh, together, uh, it, did, it just didn't add... Um, and I was really interested, not so much in the dates, unfortunately, but really into the archaeology of normal life, of normal people, um, with the usual questions. What do they eat? What do they wear? What do they look like? And where do they go to the yeah. toilets? Um, that's always what yeah. we got. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. These are the questions that need to be uh, they answered. They do. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I, I started like that, arrived in England about, Oh, in 2014, actually. Okay. Um, for an mm -hmm. internship in the Roman Baths Museum um, in Bath. Uh -huh. oh, really? uh, met a reenactment group that was doing uh, Romans and Britons. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Met a young blacksmith there. <laughs> oh, right. And uh, after oh so many adventures and fights, um, we ended up working on the same Tudor farm. <laughs> So Brilliant. he brought me back yeah. from France uh, to work on the Tudor farm and I've never left England yeah. um, and decided to stay as as usual, really. The maid yeah. ended up with a blacksmith. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. and that's that's how I for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, um, it's, a, it's a combination that seems to, be, uh, seems to be working. I mean, we've sort of broadly painted a very... Um, broad, loose picture of what you do, but how would you describe what you uh, do uh, together and, and separately for that um, matter? I, we usually call ourselves living historians, I mean, doing living history mm -hmm. or period interpreters. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very good question because yeah. there's not a very specific word um, for that kind of, of job, of profession, whereas in yeah, France yeah. we call them... Um, cultural mediators instead of interpreters. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, though yeah, they yeah. don't all do living history, so it's a very <laughs> complicated question. Um, we translate very in-depth archaeological and historical research um, into mm. visually attractive 
uh, an interactive yeah. displays for yeah. the public. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, yeah. usually how I explain it. No, living history is uh, living history is uh, is a good description. I think people will grasp it uh, from those two words better than uh, our introduction. <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> <laughs> It was a very good introduction, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> um, it is. No, the thing is, that, I mean, just from chatting to you uh, with you before, you know, there's just so much that uh, that that we could chat about, you know. And there are, uh, I mean, some of the interesting things. We, you know, we're going to talk about all these things. But one of the things that I particularly liked that I'd love you to talk about is the fact that because we often ignore these little details when we're thinking about the past and you know even the, you know, like you make a comment of where do they go to the toilet because we just you know everybody glosses over these things you read a book is it in there no it isn't and no. uh, one of the comments that you uh, made uh, when we were chatting previously was no waste yes uh, and that mm-hmm. that is it, it's such a huge uh you know, one of the things that we've got wrong in modern society. You know, so uh, tell us a bit about you know your uh, you know your understanding of that aspect of daily life. Sure, uh, it's a very interesting mm. one I find because it actually could provide answers to modern problems. Uh, the waste problem, mm. really, in the twenty first century, is is a big one, and it's mainly happening because of the introduction of plastic. Um, yeah. And um, I would have said industrialization, but maybe not. Um, and that's something that didn't happen even in my grandparents' time. And I'm not that old. <laughs> mm. yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a very recent problem. Um, waste of food as well. Uh, that's that's kind of the same. But when we talk about waste, we tend to explain it through our um, our specific personal displays. I work mainly on food and paints and pigments, for example. And Tom, being a blacksmith, usually presents Iron Age up to any time period, um, blacksmithing, forging metalwork, and things like that. And there is no waste either in crafts. Mm -hmm. So what we started doing this year is actually presenting um, Iron Age hunting. Uh, Tom does that. And we show people not just how to butcher an animal, but also butcher and cook, but also how to use the skin, how to make rawhide or leather, how you use uh, sinew and the tendons to make cordage, um, how you can use Uh, hooves and other parts to make high glue that we can then use with the rawhide on our replica shields, um, and so on and so forth. And that's something that we really find important, that throughout history, if ever you have any kind of material, in, in fact... Uh, both for crafts or for food or uh, or even storage, you reuse it. You are incredibly yeah. inventive. Um, mm. I was just reading a document yesterday <laughs> for a site for a site in in Gaul, um, an oppidum Bibracht, uh, which is where Caesar decided to to camp for the winter. Anyway, at some point. <laughs> um, and they have an incredible mass. They have tons of amphorae and broken imported pottery. Mm-hmm. They don't throw yeah. them away. It's not in in a pit or anything like that. They turn it into um, into roads. <laughs> they use yeah, it to okay. pave the place, <laughs> or um, yeah, they turn yeah, it yeah, to yeah, build yeah. buildings on top of it. 
So there's, yeah, that's that kind of idea. How did you uh, find yourself learning the disciplines of no waste, of of uh, extrapolating, you know, what the systems were to make sure that there's no waste? You know, for example, you know, when you're deciding what to do with uh, the parts of an, uh, a butchered animal, um, did, did you learn that from book or does it come <laughs> from practice? I would say it comes from it comes from both. I mean, you. When you're researching yeah. initially, before we take up a particular craft or display anyway, we generally do end up researching about it before. And um, you will find that, well, certainly a lot of the people who have written texts or analysis of, uh, say, the Iron Age, of course, they uh, grew up in, uh, like our grandparents, not wasting anything. Some mm-hmm. of them may have even had a case where they had pigs still in their yard as a waste disposal unit you know um and when you start taking that into the context of um iron age tribes and even uh, tribes today in some of the more remote areas of the world where if you look at a pig we might see it just as an animal that we can throw scraps to but you've got to bear in mind a pig can turn almost any piece of scrap (laughs) or rubbish into protein and food for you so even though you yeah. can't eat it, they can, and it eventually translate into food for you. And then from that pig, what else are you going to get? So yeah, it's we we might make uh, myself for uh, the hunting displays, and uh, after butchering the animal, I'm researching whether leg bones of sheep are being used as gouges for woodwork or as spearheads mm-hmm. for hunting, um, uh-huh. which is currently mm-hmm. for me it's the winning argument. <laughs> Uh, but also they're being turned into awls for leather work. You've, you've got everything wow, you need in yeah. there and maybe even weaving combs. And so now we're yeah. trying to attach sheep bone spearheads onto a wooden shaft. So how do we do that? Do we drill a pin and put okay. a pin of wood through? Do we bind it with sinew from the animal's uh, tendons? What, what are we doing? Can we get everything we need for the next step from yeah. that animal, from what yeah. we're using? One of the things that uh, that I think you know is a, for me anyway is an interesting uh, extension of of what you've just been talking about. From the point of view of this being daily life, is your understanding that every household would be doing this, or that people within a household would have a load of this left over that they would take to so and so next door because they're good at using, you know whatever um do you see what i mean is it something yes did everybody do this or did people share the disciplines around once again we can only base ourselves on uh archaeological remains and comparison with ethno-archaeology or uh what is said from roman or greek or roman texts mm, um, sure, and sure. it appeared that at, during the iron age and we study mainly the second half of the iron age it's a very specialized society on some hill forts or on some sites you will find an awful lot of um say sheep bones and it sometimes begins to be explained by the fact that you have all the farms around there you would bring your sheep they are butchered on a specific part of the site on the other side of the site you usually have the artisan uh, artisans quarters so depending on the type of finds and what you have all around, you might see clearly in the assemblages. I love using these words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so clever. 
<laughs> you might see in, in the yeah, ophthalmologist people are specialists. Um, <laughs> I usually say, uh, I usually see Iron Age society and probably earlier societies as well. As somebody once told me, which is always remember if somebody had the time to build Stonehenge, somebody else was at home trying to prepare food, keep the house tidy, look yeah. after the animals and the fields. And that's true. There there are extremely yeah, yeah. specialized craft or there are people who are working in different um, areas, uh, say agriculture. A lot of people would work in agriculture. Yeah. Um, a lot of people ask, but warrior classes? Yes, there were definitely some specialists. And you have um, armed peasantry as well on the side. For the craft, it's actually, that's a good question for Tom, because the vision of uh, iron working in the Iron Age as a very new material is sometimes described as a very revered and specialist craft, and by some other authors, a very low class, quite new, not really understood um, type of craft as well so. yeah it's it with with blacksmithing and metalworking in in britain i mean when we're talking about specialization um what i sometimes find interesting is that you have some sites where they are actually making artifacts from iron but all they're doing on that site is making them someone else in another okay. village so many miles down the way is doing the smelting yeah, they're not for oh, something oh. where we think oh a blacksmith would yeah, smelt yeah. his own metal and then forward it in some cases that yeah. is what's happening but there is also clear divides where there is um the, the names slip me because i always forget these two names um two hill forts in wales one where they're producing vast amounts of iron um billets or they're they're, they're smelting lots of iron uh-huh but they're yeah. working relatively little. The the complexes that have been found suggest small amount of actual metal working into artifacts. Interesting. But about twenty miles away, there's another hill fort where they're smelting virtually no iron, but they are just working, what? working, working iron artifacts out and making items. And oh, it shows goodness. a huge complex of uh, blacksmiths yeah. and the amount of scale and and remains from metal work we find is quite quite large. So there is that level of specialization. Then also we have to ask about was blacksmithing done by absolute experts, you know, people who absolutely knew what they were doing. And in some instances, yes, there's items like the Kirkburn sword that shows that whoever made that was an absolute master and expert and specialist in what they were doing. And then there's various items like what's uh, affectionately sometimes called the, uh, the bean tin or coffee can, uh, uh, a metal <laughs> container on an iron chain with some of the worst engraving you've ever seen in it. <laughs> it <is terrible>. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you compare it to the Iron Age artwork across Britain and out of all of it, this is some of the shoddiest work done. Is this someone learning? Is it yeah. the son of yeah. someone who was trying and proudly brought it to them to say, look what I did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was yeah. their apprentice piece. There's iron swords that mm. show that they knew exactly what they were doing, or at least had a very good grasp of hardening and tempering. And then there's iron swords that show they're just metal bars with the hammer, edges hammered sharp yeah. and stuck on a ram's horn. Fascinating. You know, you know that's a really interesting point because um, we did an interview with uh, Professor Duncan Garrow um, not so long ago. 
And he is, uh, his work on grave goods reveals that, of course, as archaeologists, there have been initially attracted to the bling, the good stuff, the stuff that stands out. And he, with the project he's doing at the moment, has been painstakingly going back and going through the other stuff that's been left in, in burials, you know, the, the ordinary, the day-to-day yeah. stuff. You know, and, and so that what he just said reminded me of that, that, that you know, the, the good stuff rises to the surface, but also we've got huge stories about, you know, the yeah, levels. Yeah. Of, of, There's of, an interesting um, aspect of uh, of transition as well, isn't there? That, you know, if you go, go back to the Bronze Age and the metal worker was uh, was probably almost a magician you know that some suddenly people are, are making metals from you know how do you turn rock you know these people can turn rock into metal and then you know you shift a thousand years or more and and everybody understands how you know what it's about that you know the the status would obviously shift from being someone who was almost an alchemist to uh, uh, to someone who however skilled was um, you know it was just another skill um it's it it, mm. it, it is it's interesting I, th- I find it fascinating how people's status in society can just change over time so off the back of what you're saying rupert i will ask uh, tom to recount his story the first attempt of the sword oh <laughs> yes. yeah yeah, yeah. That, yeah good one. <laughs> oh, yes yeah. the sword um so yeah. yeah, that was a fun project to do during um, a week-long display at Chalk Valley History Festival. Um, and I think it was about three years ago now, actually. Um, and I'd made some modern swords before using a nice uh, fan fuel forges and nice grinders to help me finish off shapes and so on and so forth. Um, but being a little bit stuck of what to do for the demonstration i didn't want to just keep making your bog standard nails spearheads and things i wanted to to work on something over the week and it's been a little theory of mine wondering how actually expensive swords were in the iron age as i said some are undoubtedly for lords you know incredibly expensive with uh, inlaid coral from the coasts of Italy in the handles in a oh sword in Yorkshire, gracious. the Kirkburn sword. Oh, um, flipping heck. There's ones like that. And then, as I said, there's ones found where they are just hammered billets of iron with sharp edges stuck on a ram's horn. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to test this theory out. How quickly with basic equipment could I make a sword? Um, and bearing in mind, I was having to explain to people and stop and chat to them all, all week long. Took me only three days of fairly laid back work, I've got to say, on a hand pumped charcoal forge using an iron hammer, an iron billet, and a small two inch square iron anvil. And over three days, I forged out. Yeah, Yeah, just a two inch square. (laughs) And out of of, over three days, I forged out a fully functioning iron sword, which we then uh, tested. Um, it wasn't quenched, it wasn't tempered, it was just forged out and then while cold, the edges were hardened, hammered uh, to harden them and make them sharp, sharpened up with a yeah. whetstone. Um, we put a simple wooden handle on it, had a deer carcass on a wooden pell. And um, yeah, we did that in front of, did the cut test in front of about 200 to 500 people. And when we cut through and the crowd goes silent, uh, how <laughs> lethal the shot was, you know, you've done a good sword, you've made it right. Yeah. And that 
yeah. within that sword, I had to say that there's no, there was no specialist knowledge. There was no fire welding. There was, there was nothing that someone who hasn't, who's seen it done before, who has seen someone forging, mm. you can, you can figure mm. that out yourself. Um, you mm. heat up the metal and hit it, and try and hit it into the rough yeah. shape of a sword, which yeah. isn't that complex. Yeah. Um, yeah. And three days, simple tools, simple uh, theory and knowledge. We had a working sword. That is really interesting. So, so okay, taking that example where you say that that was laid back work and you were doing other things at the same time. If you were under pressure and somebody said, "Make me a sword now," how long would it take you? Um, with those same bits of equipment and with the evidence of iron currency bars uh, being traded in Britain, if you could somehow purchase one of those, um, and we know certainly people were producing lots of grain and there was wealth in Britain, so potentially a farmer could, in essence, have traded his extra grain for an iron billet, mm. um, I mm. think I could easily do that in a day. If, right. if that. Wow. Um, I yeah. mean, uh, I would have to work hard. But I'm not against that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but the point is, you've got you've got you've got a simple thing that's been made in a day that is yes. lethal and effective. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's that that's a kind of magic. <laughs> it, is, it, it is absolutely I mean, it is, it's it's kind of magic. So when yeah. you, when you talk about an iron billet, tell our listeners uh, describe an iron billet. How big is it? So. Uh, they vary. Some can be only about a foot long. There are examples found from, I think, Danbury Hillfort, and uh, you can see them in uh, uh, the Andover Museum of Iron Age History and the likes, um, that are essentially full sword length. Um, some are longer, right. some are shorter. Uh, and in Britain, there's a multitude of examples where they are just flat bars, there, and mm. one end of it might be pointed, uh, the other end could be forged into a, so a, a rough socket, um, folded over and welded onto the uh, main section. All of these, there's a language going on there saying that this is good quality iron. This iron is good for welding. This iron's good for making sockets. Okay. Um, mm. Don't get me wrong. When I did this sword, um, and we were, it was partly the whole test was to see would it bend like um, Roman writers talk about the Celtic swords bending and the warrior having to retire from battle to stamp his blade flat and then rejoin the fray. <laughs> um, and yeah, that iron sword did bend. It, it took a bit. Sometimes it bent a lot. Other times we've tested it, it. It was a marginal bend and you could still fight with it. And straightening yeah. it out, I just dropped it to the floor, stamped on it quickly, picked it back up and I was ready to go again. Okay. Um, <laughs> wow. But it... it but it was that still very effective weapon. And, and yeah, the, the billets we get, the Iron Age currency bars, you could get one that means you have a lot of work to do, or you could potentially get one that means you just have to hit edges onto it and sharpen it with a whetstone. Yeah. Right. I think we're fascinated by the idea of currency bars, yes. and it's a, it's a subject we could chase <laughs> down quite a long rabbit hole, uh, I, I, I think. Um, perhaps we should sort of save that until uh, later yeah. on, perhaps. Well, absolutely, got, that's, uh, that can be almost time. endless, that can. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, well, that's my, that's it's my fear. It applies to so many things, yeah. doesn't it? You know, the, the, the method of exchange and what was the perceived value mm -hmm. of anything. Uh, you know, I mean, mm. in uh, in the work that you do, Carol, and I, I'm interested, that, you know, when you talk about pigments and paints, that, you know, if you wanted 
any fancy kind of clothes that I'm pretty sure wouldn't be being made in every single household. You know, what mm. are the you know what are the sort of costs involved in in something that actually requires careful, yeah. painstaking dyeing, maybe and or what weaving is that? with different. You know, it's just it's it's yeah. an extremely complex thing that we take utterly for granted today. Oh yeah, and what is perceived as having a high yeah. value? That's a very yeah. good question, uh, which unfortunately doesn't have many answers, I'm afraid, um, uh-huh. because there's a mm. lot there's a lot of research on ancient textiles, not just for the Iron Age, but as we're talking about uh, our favorite time period, there's. Um, for example, I'm working currently on a replica outfit from uh, 350 BC um, from the Holdromos mm-hmm. uh, woman that has been found in Denmark. Wow. Uh-huh. And it's it's oh, an yeah. incredible find because the, the bog body was fully clothed. So it's a 40 plus years old woman, no shoes on, and she had a now proven... There are no doubts anymore. Um, <laughs> she had an undergarment made out of plant fibers. So it could be nettles, flax or linen, uh, at least down to um, to her thighs, at least that. On top of that, she had a skirt which breaks the usual vision of the uh, the tube dress, the peplos type of dress um, with yeah. two uh, brooches on the shoulders. She had a very wide <laughs> skirt that way gathered at the top uh, at the waist by a woven band including a drawstring made out of leather that very band was built in was woven in the fabric so the fabric was started by a very specific tablet woven or something else weave then continued as a fabric uh, woven on a tubular loom on a circle loom wow um, so you have a lot of material there. On top, she had a scarf um, as well with a, a bone pin under the left arm to close it. And on top of that, not one but two capes made out of sheepskin. The closest to the body one was uh, with the wool t- turned inwards and the outer one with the wool turned outwards. So you have two layers of... 11 to 26, no, 11 to 16 sheepskins each. Um, and she had a necklace, very simple, with two tiny ember beads um, on a woolen string. And yeah, no shoes on. Uh, nothing really said about the hair that I can recall. But that has been described as potentially quite an, an expensive, um, a posh garment. And I don't see it like that at all, <laughs> unfortunately. <Right. laughs> um, yeah. I think it impresses us an awful lot when we see that because it's extremely rare to get clothing from such early time periods. And I mm-hmm. bet most farm for the very late Bronze Age will be incredibly interesting and will bring us so many more. I think I'll, we've talked about it enough times, so I think our listeners all know about must farm. But... Um, but they, you know, they're calling it Britain's Pompeii over in uh, uh, in Peterborough. Uh, so yeah, because they found fabric on the loom, didn't they, at, at Must Farm? And they found such fine threads uh, on bobbins or in in balls of yarn, and that's mm. the most to me. That's one of the most incredible finds in in Must Farm. It's 
apart from the wheel that pushes back the date of the first wheel in Britain, that's, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and the, the food in the pot with a spoon in it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and the, the Flint Quenstone that I don't know enough about. Everything is amazing, yeah. <laughs> honestly, at Moss Farm. Yeah, yeah. But the thread is, and I'm hoping there will be soon, um, or there might be already, and I don't know about it, but analysis um, on any textiles they may find to see if they were dyed or not. Because mm-hmm. must farm is just at the limit between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Mm-hmm. And normally the commonly agreed uh, idea is that in the Bronze Age, we don't dye our clothes. Whereas in the Iron Age, there's a great revolution in color. Uh, and everybody loves deeply, very brightly colored, garishly colored yeah. uh, fabrics, which begins to date by quite some time. Um, mm. At least the Huldramos women and all the clothes are dyed and re-dyed, so over-dyed because they were used for so long and washed so many times, they faded, yeah. so they re-dyed it with one single color, with a uh, luteolin, so a form of yellow. Yeah. Um, but yes, to <laughs> to go back to the, the waste idea, this Iron Age, uh, mid-Iron Age outfits has been repaired so many times. Uh-huh. There's so many patches of different types of leather uh, on the, the capes, for example, that it, it just makes it not new. Yeah. But this new uh, article, uh, I think it has been published okay, it might be 10 years ago. Okay. <laughs> we are in 2020. Uh, time goes quickly. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the very recent ones. Um, they suddenly um, analyzed the the textiles and the lady. Uh, it's a strong strontium, quite yes, strontium yes. analysis. That's yeah. right. Right yeah. to uh, to have a look at the provenance of such things. And interestingly enough, uh, and very surprisingly, the woman herself and uh, the plant fibers undergarments seems to come from some way away. Because that has been found, I think, in Jutland, but in Denmark. Yeah. And the only Precumbrian yeah. environment um, that they can find around would be Norway, Sweden, or islands in the Baltic Sea. Okay. So the lady is not that local. The undergarment seems to come from the same place, yet the woolen scarf is definitely local. Right. Wow. And it's... It's these parts of daily life we'll never really know. She repaired all her garments, or somebody did. She happened to die there, but was she traveling? Uh, yeah. Was she actually living here? Did she just arrive from, say, Norway, went to a market around here, bought a scarf, and two weeks later died and had no family around, so was deposited in a grave in the bog? We'll never Isn't know. That's the extraordinary thing that a strontium analysis that gives us this this recurring story of people being buried not in the place they came from, of, mm. of mobility, of people travelling long distances. You know, Please. we hear tales, you know, not so long ago, maybe even current, that people that you know haven't left their village in. <laughs> 80 yeah. years, <laughs> and true. yet there's these burials of people yeah. from back then being revealed yeah. to be I ha- travels, uh, There's an old the boy in travels. a village not far from me, actually, who is in his 90s, and yeah. he has never been outside his village. It's crazy. Wow. 
Yeah. Someone else has always gone and done his shopping and all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. amazing, isn't it? And then you go back thousands of years and people would use, you know, it's yes, the same, isn't absolutely. it? Some people travelled, some people didn't. I'm fascinated in this aspect of repair, though, because not just with... Uh, uh, with fabrics, but Tom also with uh, with metals as well. You know, mm, yeah. if anything required a significant amount of time, effort, and cost to produce, then obviously you know it was not like today. They would have repaired it. They wouldn't have thrown it away. So it's an interesting thing, I think, um, where you might have something that you know. Ha- where's that tipping point where something that was so valuable in itself? But it is no longer worth repair. Ah, <laughs> that's, that's always the, for you. That's for the bronze. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, this is the the interesting thing. I mean, with iron, um, it can be fairly simple, uh, well, relatively simple to uh, repair it. Danbury Hillfort, for example, we there is a um, a saw that has snapped in half, and it's found alongside another saw, which is pristine and, and wonderful. Uh, a similar saw found next to it snapped in half and someone has fire welded the two halves back together right, in life. Right. Now, the debate is, does that saw still work? Because in theory, you now have one blade offset from the other. Yeah. Um, with a little bit of work, I won't be surprised if you could then... Yeah, it could have been reworked and it could it might have worked perfectly fine afterwards. It could have just been someone learning fire welding and, yeah. hey, here's two pieces of scrap. See if you can put them back together. Who knows? Um, I've always said that throughout uh, uh, learning blacksmithing and doing my displays, I've always said that blacksmiths were one of the ultimate recyclers because, for instance, if you have Mm -hmm. something like a scythe and that snaps, you don't have a broken scythe. You have now two pieces of metal that can be turned into bill hooks. Uh And then those pieces can be turned into small knives. And then those pieces can be turned into nails. And then if all else fails, you can take those nails, drop them in a furnace, smelt them all back together and you've got a bloom of iron again and you start all over again yeah um you do lose some of the metal over time i mean i'd like to say it's an infinite process but you will lose over time material into slag and that um but what's great is slag can be put back into bloomeries and in fact post uh, i think early industrial revolution they were actually taking known roman iron age and saxon slag deposits and dropping them back into furnaces because the original processes had been so inefficient there was still about 36% plus iron in the slag and so they were just taking the already kind of reduced slag dropping it back into the furnace and extracting iron from that instead of excavating more ore uh, and uh, doing it that way Mm. Um, so that that recycling can can almost go on indefinitely I would say Um, Mm. Uh, yeah at what point does something become unusable um it's hard to tell as a historic cutler i have examples of knives from the 17th century Mm. where the knife is definitely it started life as an eating knife it has all the same characteristics as the eating knife same shapes post 1650 um, drop in the tip so that you can't easily stab anyone anymore because that becomes the fashion to have drop tip knives again or rounded tip knives Um, the handle just as you would expect it to be an eating knife the only crux is this knife in its entirety blade and handle is only eight centimeters long 
Okay. <laughs> so that's... It has broken. The tip shows it has snapped. It's been reworked yeah. down and down and down until you have a blade four centimeters long. No, yeah. four centimeters long. Yeah. And for a handle four centimeters long. And okay. it's a tiny Just... knife. Yeah. Um, they think it was used for then use for skiving leather, for skimming the edge off uh, okay. a piece of leather while working it. Mm. Um, mm. But undoubtedly, it it was bigger at some point, mm. and it's mm. still got the same shapes as an eating knife. Maybe they gave it to a child to use as a yeah. practice eating knife. You know, and we can find those exact same things. Um, Iron Age knives. Mm. We have plenty of examples. It may have been because they've rotted away or degraded in the ground. Um, but we have plenty of examples of worn iron knives that are almost to a nub. Ertzi mm. has a flint oh. knife that has worn almost to a nub. And in his backpack, I think he has the components of a knife he was making to replace the old one. Yeah. Oh, bless. And he yeah. you know, he's to, using to, it to and using it, it until yeah. it's till it's nothing. Yeah. It's a valuable piece. It's got worth still. Um, I think most people, if they have a pen knife that wears down that far, they chuck it. But yeah. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how that simple question of, of waste reveals so much? Yeah. It's oh, at goodness. the heart of every craft and daily life in yeah. anywhere. It's it's such an important thing. And the the problem is for me, I don't I struggle to see it as people see it in the twenty first century because I haven't been brought up like that. Yeah. I have been um, taught by my parents since I'm born that you eat everything what is not yeah. eaten, then will be eaten the next day. And you transform yeah. every dish into yeah. something new every other day. We yeah. try to repair every kind of clothes. And it wasn't for lack of money. It's just the way people lived. Yeah. Or my parents have yeah. been taught by my grandparents and throughout the world wars, etc. In Eastern yeah. France, we still... Uh, are pretty yes. rural communities. Um, yeah. You want to come so down it's... here? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but that's that's the things that are so interesting, and people go back to it. It has been what one, maybe two generations, mm-hmm. and that's it. We're going back to less plastic, more recycling, more repairing things, and growing food locally, and all that. It has been the case for thousands of years, and within two generations in the 21st century, we understand it's not the right way. Yeah. It, it's just fascinating. Yeah. Can I take it in a slightly different direction? Sure. Now? <laughs> Caroline, I just wanted to ask you, that on, on, the, on your website, um, it, talk, it, it says about giving talks or demonstrating or uh, teaching how... The study of pollens and seeds and bones, etc., um, by archaeologists. Um, how, how you use that information uh, to recreate the cooking techniques that uh, that you've developed and uh, under, understood. You know how how that information has come out of the ground. How much how you translate that. Uh, yes. you know, raw data kind of information <laughs> into In, uh, you know the techniques that you use what i find uh great is that you can almost taste archaeology um <laughs> <laughs> so i didn't i didn't invent it i have to admit uh, but it's it's the process that i like to explain from the dig to the plate yeah. um without archaeology without these data there is specific one on 
uh, pollens on osteology, so bones remains, carpology for the seeds, um, even dendrochronology, but the paleo yeah. environment in general, and then yeah. um, residue analysis on po um, on cooking pots, for example. All of these are the most important data I can ever get. Except if you go to Must Farm and you find a pot with the food. <laughs> 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 this is just, yeah, this is the, the absolute best. But yeah. we, we don't have texts. Uh, we don't have apicius recipes for the Iron sure. Age and earlier time periods. If you don't base yourself on these data, you won't have access to a non-exhaustive, in any case, but a list of potential ingredients from there on, you have to work with archaeology again, but about the uh, ceramic, uh, about the metalwork and all these sort of things, everything that could be or is a utensil. For example, um, in the Iron Age, both in Gaul and in Britain, there are no, not that I know of, there are no frying pans. It's mm. a technology, it's an item that arrives with the legionaries with a folding frying pan in their backpack. It's not a way we eat. We don't yeah, fry yeah. things. So unfortunately, yeah. I can't make Iron Age pancakes. That's dramatic <laughs> Isn't that for me. Interesting. Me. <laughs> Isn't it? You just would never think of things like that. Okay. Yeah. So you can right. make things on a flat hot, sto hot stone. Uh, you can you can bake you can cook a stew in raw deer skin. So you can butcher an animal, use the skin as a cauldron, suspend it on a fire, and by the beautiful law of physics and, <laughs> and how the words work, it works. You can cook with hot stones and we have so yeah. many examples of different techniques that I unfortunately didn't have the pleasure to experiment with enough. Um, and it's, it's all of that that you have to take into account to eventually explain to people that no, we don't eat wild boar roasted on a fire pit like in Asterix all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I get in France a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's and the food wasn't bland. It wasn't samey. There's a difference between surviving and um, going through not the winter but springtime. Early spring yeah. is the is the completed time period, um, and just living life. Yeah. Humans will make themselves comfortable. Mm -hmm. any time period, anywhere around the world. Why would you have developed agriculture if it was to eat bland porridge every day of your life? It yeah. doesn't make yep. sense. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, archaeology now with the new um, ways of gathering data and the analysis that are mind-blowing to me, um, yeah. you can get so many information. <laughs> unfortunately, I will never ever be able to tell you this is exactly what it tasted like in the Iron Age. Mm -hmm. No chance. Yeah. Even with the must far discovery, we could make the exact same recipe, but the ingredients that we will get now have grown in conditions that are not the same ones. Yes, sure. yes, it will yeah. never be the same again. But we can get yeah. close. Mm -hmm. It's not the point to taste exactly the same, even yeah. if it was a hundred percent exactly the same as what this person was cooking on that day at Must Farm, we don't yeah. have the cultural background and the sensitive and the uh, brain memory, the experience memory yeah. of a meal uh, that you can experience from a meal. So, yeah. 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 so yeah. I do all that for no reason, really. 
Well, <laughs> when two people standing in the same kitchen with the same recipe uh, produce something, you can guarantee it's going to be entirely different. So I think it would be a tall order to expect. <laughs> yeah, so true, isn't it? That's so true. very true. <laughs> yeah. Actually, do you know, something, talking about food, something that I uh, also want, uh, want to talk about, uh, which was quite a surprise to us, was the uh, the low percentages of meat from hunting. Yes. That, oh, yes. Uh, that you talked about because this a uh, bit of a bit of a revelation to uh, to us when we were uh, chatting before uh, that this uh, fundamental cultural change from Neolithic and Bronze Age into the Iron Age. So yeah, tell us about what um, what you know about uh, the sort of meat that they were eating. Um, according to my five minutes research just before then, <laughs> no, we gathered the precise numbers because I really wanted to to give you uh, numbers that I've I've read in archaeological publications. Oh, um, so Thank for you. Danbury Hillfold, for example, uh, we also have Glastonbury, we have the Fiskerton Causeway, we have many many different remains, um, and Tom will explain much better than me. Uh, what the um, the difference between hunting and and agriculture uh, yeah. is, but in essence, for the non-hunted animal, for the um, how do you call them domestic? That's it. Yeah. For the <laughs> domestic animals in England, on average, you usually have sheep first, sheep and goat. They they they're very completely to separate. Um, and in Danbury Hillfort, you have sixty-one percent. Of sheep, wow. bones f- from uh, butchered bones, twenty yeah. percent cattle, eleven yeah. percent pig, yeah. then three percent horse and dog that have both butchery marks on their bones, okay. and then so we eat horse, we eat uh, dog, and then there's two percent that are other species and wild species. There's very 2%. little hunting, wow. usually around say. Five percent of the of the meat would be uh, would be hunted, except if you live in an environment that is favorable to more hunting, less uh, agriculture and pasture yeah, land. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's quite surprising, really, those differences. Um, we always, as Caroline was saying, think of uh, the. Britons or the Celts eating wild boar every night and, and so on mm. and so forth and that being the main source of food but uh, what people need to realize is that farming uh, uh, agriculture it's interdependent relationship between the animals and the crops that you're growing yeah um, and they did make use of every scrap of resource every every way they could exploit it so when, once you've harvested in your barley or whatnot and you've got your stubble out there you send out your cattle first followed okay. by your sheep and then followed by your pigs in the autumn and you've got three animals worth of uh, manure going into the ground yeah. to help you when you grow your next batch of crops um and even in places like uh, Glastonbury and uh, Glastonbury Lake Village in Mere Lake Village, they, where where hunting is higher than normal, um, yeah. as Caroline was saying, it's it's about two to five percent across roughly across Britain is is your hunted animals that are providing you meat, um, and the rest is is domesticated animals. Even in Glastonbury, where that percentage creeps up, mm. you've still got vast quantities of sheep being grazed mm-hmm. um and, and reared and about 88 percent of the bones there 
of the domesticated animals uh, are cheap, yeah. still vast numbers. Yeah. Um, you do have as well dog and, and uh, horse and some cattle as well. Um, and even even for the hunted animals, it's not yeah. boar. There may yeah. be an occasion where it's boar or something, but even then that's hard to tell between the bones of a wild boar and a yeah. large domesticated pig. Indeed. What's quite surprising, it was quite surprising to me at least, um, it's birds. Okay. Uh, Glastonbury, there's over 30 birds, different types of birds identified within the bone heaps. Oh, seriously? Um, okay. You've got duck, swan, quail, yeah. wood pigeon, goose, grouse, uh, moorhen, crane, heron. Um, wow. They're fishing you. That you have eel, uh, roach, salmon, cod, yeah, and bass, yeah. um, and that's just Glastonbury Lake Village over in East Anglia again, where areas get marshy and boggy, and you've got the fens. Um, there again is a very small percentage, very small percentage of where it is boar and deer, um, but there's things like Dalmatian pelicans being. Mm-hmm hunted there's swan swan actually makes yeah. up a, an impressively sizable amount of the bones found of butchered heron. animals um heron, oh, heron is a real key one um and let alone food we've we mustn't forget that they are hunting animals like otter and beaver and, and yeah. martins uh, foxes most predominantly for their fur yeah what i always love is amongst all of these you have these numbers and all these animals, and then you still find hedgehog amongst it as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the um, Romans liked hedgehog, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know. the Tudors um, as well. Tudors yeah. as well. But but when you encounter things like um, red deer, I, I think Danebury Hillfort. I think it's Danebury Hillfort. Um, it's it's usually quite hard to ascertain how much deer they were eating because. A lot of the samples go upon antlers, and of course, deer shed yeah. their antlers, so it could yeah. have just been collected. Yeah. But when there's the red deer bones found at Danebury Hillfort, they're not all those red deer bones come from one animal, and the animal hasn't been butchered, the animal's been laid in a grave like you would a pet. And next to it, oh. there's also um, a bird, potentially a a crow or a raven, a corvid-type uh, oh. bird, again, in a grave, not butchered, nothing like that. The deer, I think it, it shows fawn, signs it? that on its leg, it's, it's a fawn, it's died young, and one of its legs seems like it had an injury. So maybe someone's been out on the track, come across an injured deer that's been abandoned, brought it home as a pet or whatnot, Oh it's died, goodness. and the family has buried it like you would a pet. Wow. And cats. Wow. Just cats. amazing. Cats too. Cats. Oh, wow. Well, okay. They've got wild cats. No, no, wild I mean, yeah. kittens. You know, oh, the, kittens, sorry. Yeah, there's yeah. a kind of kittens. Well, oh. I mean, uh, not butchered, by the way. Sorry, I shouldn't Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> that um, is interesting. Okay, no, I had no idea. I had no idea. But the otter, otters and beavers are much more predominant in the wild uh, animals hunted than I thought um, earlier on. Amazing. Um, and I have to say beaver, the, the fact that their tail is mainly a, res- a reserve of fat for the winter yeah. is very interesting. Um, the fur, obviously. Yeah, Possibly yeah. The, the teeth for making tools and, uh, and things like that. Yeah, um, yeah. But the potential glands... Uh, uh, of castor oil, castor. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. could have been used as well. There's there's only very little ah, evidence of butchery okay. for the tail. It's, it's complicated. That's fascinating. 
That is fascinating. But in essence, there's not a lot of hunting. Though, if you go up to Scotland, for example, you might on some side go up from 5 to 20% of the yeah. butchered animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The increase yeah. is quite high. And when you get to the coast, on the coast as well, collection of shellfish Absolutely. increases yes. as yes. well. But regardless of where you are, generally speaking, it's um, agriculture and uh, farmed animals. Um, And generally with sheep as the primary source. However, of course, there's always the exceptions. I mean, there's some hillforts in Wales where cattle Mm -hmm. form about 64% of the domesticated animal bones. Um, And those ones, they seem to be, again, also being slaughtered at quite a young age. Um, they're, They're... and fairly regularly uh, culling them um, and eating veal uh, and eating calves, basically. Um, So there's always exceptions. There's always differences. Um, But, but as we say, hunting is, unless you're in very specific places, hunting's a very small part. Yeah. 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 And even then when you are hunting, it's not what we think. (laughs) (laughs) You're giving us a, a wealth of information. This is absolutely fascinating stuff. I was just going to say, no, I'm just a, a conscious of uh, of time romping on, and mm, uh, mm, mm. Um, it's it is it's it's extraordinary actually the the wealth of stuff uh, that you know we can learn so much from the Iron Age from recorded uh, history, yeah, uh, largely thanks to the Romans, obviously, but that can also inform us so much about what went before. Well, I was uh, just about to say, you know, that that, uh, that Caroline and Thomas is a, essentially being experimental archaeologists. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, how do you think, do, do you think doing what you do it, it can give you a, a telescope you know, to further back in time? Or does is there a boundary, is there a big shift uh, from the from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. It, Do, I mean, are you conscious of that? Are you, are you being made aware of that at all? It depends on the time periods, but it depends on the crafts as well. Um, yeah. I wouldn't know the the start of anything about flint napping, for example. Yeah. Um, bronze Bronze Age uh, bronze working and bronze casting is very similar in techniques to what will be well sure. even happening in the 21st century, apart from modern mm. equipment. Um, so that could have been transferable, unfortunately, for blacksmiths and people working iron. Oh, well, they don't have a choice either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's no choice there. But but what's interesting on that, again, with a saying about waste, about the saw being repaired and things like that, again, there's things as simple as war clubs, wooden yeah. war clubs found on the continent, um, something that we would think is a peasant weapon, a low-status weapon, but these ones in particular show particular maybe sentimental value because they've snapped, mm-hmm. and instead of just carving yourself a new one, they've actually splintered and bound the handle back up with leather and rawhide to continue using it. Right, they haven't just chucked it away. Yeah. Now, how yeah. long that splint would have lasted is another matter altogether. Time, yeah. Um, <laughs> but they're not as I say, that there's still a wooden item which you would think they'd be able to easily harvest and create a new one. Yeah, they're yeah. still that treating is, it with care and reusing it. it. How, yeah. 
How, so how often has that been observed? Do you know? I couldn't give you a number on that one. But um, it's certainly, but but you know, it's, it's multiple. Certainly so, enough yeah. The, yeah, to make okay. it not well, a one-off. There's yeah. there's a few of them across. I think it's mostly what is now Germany um, yeah. and uh, southern Denmark as well. Um, wow. Certainly as well. If if you take things like the numbers, this uh, that they think fought at things like the Battle of Tolland Bridge, um, the number mm-hmm. of war uh, war clubs that. Uh, certainly look like baseball bats and then ones that look like typical hammers that you would use Um, it must have been more of a common practice there must have been more Um, and still useful still something that you would take with you as something you believe is going to protect you in a a fight or a skirmish against opposing forces so it's got value in it um, despite it not being bronze I think they are There are limits to for us to go back in time, but there are clearly things that um, that apply. We yeah. always say humanity didn't change in ten thousand years. the The things that you observe with your family, your friends, uh, your neighbours, your village life or town life, really nowadays, yeah. is exactly the same as in so many different time periods. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is a very interesting change in the in the Bronze Age uh, for me um, regarding private property, the development of that idea of private property, and suddenly you have yeah. um, more smaller houses, more personal, more family family sized houses, uh, not great big halls um, to uh, to host probably extended family or several of them. Um, and it arrives with an awful lot of problems as well. The development of um, swords that are clearly the one of the only items that are designed to fight, to kill people um, mm. with no other, uh, no other um, use. Whereas yeah. a bow, an arrow, you can hunt with it, etc. So they, to me, that would be that would be the limits. I'm not sure for the moment that I can go yeah. past yeah, yeah. that point of view though yeah. it would be extremely interesting for me and that's why we would like to go back in time at least to the Bronze Age yeah. um, just to see a little bit how different it is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. they still use yeah. pottery they still cook in the same way and they still have hygiene uh, yeah. but <laughs> what was it how was it like yeah so yeah. that's a very good question, yes. <laughs> that question, yeah, how was it like, though? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground, um, but one thing that just crossed my mind, because I had an image, I was looking at some stuff uh, in um, Francis Pryor's book, yes, and there's a gorgeous photograph of uh, an, an Iron Age um, house, I mean, I have to call it a house because it's quite got. It's quite. Yeah. It's not a hut, you know. Oh, it's no. got <laughs> size to it, exactly. And uh, we haven't sort of talked about the living conditions. You know, the the, the conviviality of it, the um, the atmosphere of it, perhaps. I don't know if you've got any experience of uh, many, um, many, <laughs> very yeah. good. Many We've had a few, <laughs> some very nice nights and some very cold nights in reconstructed yeah. roundhouses. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, speak to that a, a, a little bit, if you can. I think one of the things we've uh, realised, having stayed in um, some fantastic reconstructions across mm-hmm. the country, um, and, I mean, we've been on 
uh, a, a Cranog out on a loch. Um, <laughs> so a roundhouse on stilts out yeah. in the water. Yeah. Um, which loch? Which loch did you? Which, was that loch? Uh, loch Tay. Tay, that was. So that's okay. the Scottish Cranog. The Scottish Cranog. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. The, the and so we, we've had the chance to stay in there for the night. Um, we've been to Chilton Open Air Museum. Uh, yeah. The Ancient Technology Centre. We've we've had a chance to stay in different roundhouses at different sites. Now all fantastic reproductions and mm. reconstructions. Sorry, um, but I think my biggest thing has always been because these are only reconstructions, and for the large majority of the time, they're to be looked at and visited, and then yeah. you leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless we get a chance, and hey, we're, we're willing for anyone to offer us this chance, <laughs> to go and live in a roundhouse for an extended period. Um, and we're talking months, weeks and months. Not just, <laughs> yes. yeah, 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 not just a week, but months. You make that house comfortable. You sweep it, you yeah. clean it, you put fresh yeah. bedding down, you sort yeah. out the fire, you find out how it works, you you work out, you actively repair walls, you repair thatching, you you you, you problem solve it. the problems that come out and you maintain the house. Um, and that has been the biggest thing. They've been great to stay in, but every roundhouse has been, every reproduction we've been in has, yeah. of course, been there for visitors to see and then they leave. And yes. so there's just that element, you feel that they would be uncomfortable. You would make mm-hmm. them comfortable Castle and Hennis, you take advantage of it. I think and has been the yeah. best furnished house. There's a, a, a very good one at Butser Ancient Farm as well, but Castle Henley's was incredibly, looked incredibly cosy. And that's oh. the thing. We don't have much information about the furniture and you can't say that Iron Age people, and so most farm, honestly, fingers crossed, prove it, go for it. I <laughs> want a bed. I want a bed and I want it above the ground. I want shelves and I want a chair and low tables. Some of them yeah. are mentioned mentioned in ancient texts. And that's yeah. all very well. But you can't say that in Hallstatt culture in German, in Hordorf, people can have a mattress, several layers stuffed and a pillow and blanket on a bronze couch with wheels yeah. to move it and not be able to make a wooden bed. I don't yeah. believe that. It's you yeah. make yourself comfortable. It's not a survival situation. It's mm-hmm. a human way of living. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's very telling, isn't it, when you look at places like you know Scarra Bray is probably our best example. That you go right back to the Neolithic, and you look at their furniture where you've got beds and you've got yeah, cupboards you and uh, you know that that there's no reason to think that the furniture would have been any less sophisticated just because it was made from wood everywhere else. Mm-hmm. So well, that's true. Yeah. I, I think that's where the things like the Roman texts start working against us because in the lack of having the actual archaeological evidence there in the Iron Age, we mm. start listening to people like uh, Julius Caesar or uh, Tacitus talking Tastus, about yeah. the, the Germans just making a bed by chucking down birch branches and lying on it. Yeah, wherever yeah. they may be, um, <laughs> or or yeah, just just ah oh, yeah, they just sit on skins and so on and so forth. There's no furniture in the house. Okay, well, <laughs> at what point did we suddenly go? You know what? That bed, it's not for me. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 you might like it, but it's just not how I do things. Yeah. So, uh, if, if, what, one other thing for me is um, thatch. Thatch on the houses um, uh-huh. is yeah. always uh, done from a modern perspective. It's always 
twice as thick as what it's believed it would have been. And so it creates these incredibly smoky houses when we stay oh, in them. right. Yeah. Um, whereas you compare it to uh, e- even uh, roundhouses in African tribes uh, in villages there and the thatch is half as thick. You put it on a steeper pal, a steeper angle, rain still runs off, it doesn't leak through and the smoke stays comfortably above your head. Oh. You don't spend your time in the smoke as much. Um, and so... There's still there's still work to be done. There's still experiments to be done with the houses. It's mm. not so much just about building them. I think it's now we've got to start looking at how to make them livable. What what we needs mm. to be tweaked to actually actually go past just the achievement of making them uh, go past that achievement because yeah. we we know that I, r- roughly now Must Farm has really revealed how the beams would have been sitting when yeah. holding up the houses. That's what we've been missing all these years as well. Yeah. And I think we've got a very, fairly good grasp of how some of these houses would be built. There's still theory going on, but now we need to look at how we think they were still living in it, mm. go beyond it, and now we've got to live in them, test that bit out. And that might really be one it. of the limits of uh, experimental mm. archaeology as well, because we have yeah. 21st century people, we have 21st century health and safety regulations and limitations, and... Of course, they have been. <laughs> it's so utterly inappropriate in this context, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's it's a very complex. If you start looking at open air museum and uh, replica houses and things like that, it's very complex. But to live in such a way, um, even my personally, my favorite experiment, surviving the Iron Age, that has been done twenty years ago uh, yeah. at Castle Hendes, yeah. um, it was really well thought since the start, really well made, but. The the hygiene side of things, for example, had to be tweaked because we have 21st century medicine and some people needed it because, um, uh, well, because women have monthly issues with that as well. Um, and that's something that they, di- they didn't want to experiment with. It wasn't yeah. the point, um, hmm. really. And I want to know about that because as soon yeah. as you start lifting your stone, everything makes sense. If you have a clean fireplace, you have clean wood ash, you can make lye outside. If you have lye, you can bleach things, if you can, etc., etc. But will we be able to do that for a comfortable period of time? I mean, uh, we're offering our good self. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) If anyone has any ideas, yeah. Tell us, how can people find out more about, uh, you know, what you do, where you are, and uh, and all that? Oh, well... Online websites, uh, we have both. Uh, well, each of us have a website. So myself as Pario Gallico, um, yeah. Thomas as Big Bainan's blacksmithing, yeah. and the usual Facebook, Instagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll, we'll be nice. We'll we'll drop some uh, links Ooh, into the this uh, yeah we will we'll put <laughs> the website. Page A very Iron Age. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Otherwise, meeting people yeah. on events, unfortunately, not for the moment, yeah. but um, displays yeah. and yeah. courses are really are uh, the best. Yeah. I learn yeah. so much from people I meet and just chat to because they have yeah. visited yeah. some place or seen something. Yeah. Just exchanging, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's been so exciting talking to you, too. It really, yeah, it really, really has. has. Really uh, has. Uh, terrific wealth of information, I'm sure. Uh, everybody will have really enjoyed listening to you. Well, thank, thank you, you both so very much. I think that's time to uh, 
call yeah. this, draw <laughs> this podcast to a close. To a close. <laughs> I, I Slowly would, but surely. <laughs> yes, I would like to say, though, that I very much look forward to meeting up with you guys to do somewhere, yeah. Um, yeah. which uh, I guess all of us can say that it's probably going to be next year oh. now. But, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but even so, you know, just, uh, yeah, there, there is so much to learn from what you do. Thank you so much. Well, thanks to you. Yeah. Thank please. you for having us. <laughs> it was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for listening, and uh, we'll see you all next time. We'll see you next time, yeah. Bye for Bye. now. Bye.